everybody. This is Sean, and I'm a schnook. I'm a schnook. And uh, there's a reason that I'm recording this appendix, and really the primary reason, honestly, is to test the podcast feed. Here's what's going on. Some of you may already know about this, but when I posted chapter 35, that episode didn't go through for five days for some reason, and I refed it, and it ended up getting posted twice. I'm talking about Apple Podcasts, by the way. Everybody else, including iTunes, got the episode on time. Now, the same thing is happening with Chapter 36, the most recent episode. Everybody had it published immediately, except Apple Podcasts. I'm recording this a week after Chapter 36 was posted. A week later, and already one business day past the promised response time of one business day, I have not heard from Apple as to why the episode has not been fed on Apple Podcasts. The interesting thing, though, is that the episodes have all gone through swimmingly on iTunes. For reasons I'm not going to get into right now, I still use iTunes to synchronize my podcasts and uh, maintain my iPod and my phone and everything. And... um you'd think that iTunes would basically be using the same mechanism as Apple Podcasts. So why would iTunes have the episode, but not Apple Podcasts? I don't know. Hopefully somebody's going to get back to me and say, oh, well, here's your problem, or oops. Either way, I don't care as long as I can get it going. A lot of people use Apple Podcasts. Hello again, everybody. This is Sean from the future. Since I recorded this part, uh... I have resolved the issue with Apple Podcasts. Those of you who follow me on social media might already know what the issue was, but here it is. I reached out to Apple. I filled out a support ticket with Apple Podcasts, and I said, hey, my latest episode isn't showing up in your feed, but it's showing up everywhere else, including iTunes. I heard back from Apple a couple of business days later, and uh, the rep from Apple said, well, your latest episode is not in your RSS. Uh, RSS being the file that uh, feeds podcasts, blogs, everything else that kind of gets updated from time to time. And I thought, wait a minute, what's this guy talking about? I checked the RSS a few days ago. It is absolutely in there. So I read the email further. He said, here, here's what I mean. If I curl, C-U-R-L, if I do a curl request for your RSS feed, the last episode I'm seeing is chapter 35. And I'm guessing you're looking for chapter 36, right? And he sent me a screenshot. So I tried curling it myself. I typed curl and then put the uh, URL for the RSS feed. Sure as heck, no chapter 36. It appeared that the site was feeding a cached version of the RSS feed over curl. So I did some poking around, found out how to flush the cache. And then suddenly within a couple hours, poof, chapter 36 is live on Apple Podcasts. So There you have it. Now, back to Sean of the present, or was it past? Well, you know what I mean. Conveniently, there is a way that I can test the feed, and that is to record kind of a uh, one-off appendix episode. And what's it about? Well, just this past Friday, October... 8th was it? No, 15th. Was it the 15th? Duh. 
Yeah, October 15th, I was fortunate enough to receive, on time, the new 50th anniversary release of the Beatles' Let It Be album, specifically the 5-CD slash one Blu-ray box set. The Blu-ray being a bunch of uh, multimedia remixes of uh, the Let It Be album, and of course, I don't have that kind of setup, so I can't really listen to it. I figured, hey, I'm a big Beatles fan, and a lot of people have asked me my thoughts, and I figured, hey, maybe other people will want to know as well. Now, before I get into that, there are some people listening to this who might not really know the story of the Let It Be album, so I'll tell it as uh, concisely as I possibly can. And I'm not going off a script this time. I don't have any notes in front of me. I'm just going off the top of my head, taking a few pauses to drink some tea. Ah, there we go. After the Beatles recorded their self-titled album, also known as the White Album, in 1968, I guess there was kind of a bad taste left in everybody's mouths. So Paul McCartney came up with this idea. He said, hey, let's see if we can put on some kind of a live show. We'll rehearse a bunch of tunes that we wrote, and let's see exactly what we can do. Well, there was a problem that George Harrison was going to be in L.A. for a while, so it would have to wait until he returned from Los Angeles. And Ringo Starr had a deal to film the movie The Magic Christian. So he was kind of on a deadline there. Whatever project they were going to be doing had to be done by a certain date. So basically, that limited the Beatles to the month of January 1969 to rehearse for this live performance. Where was this live performance going to be? Well, the idea was tossed around that it was going to be on a boat, and they would invite Beatles fans to join them on this cruise for this live performance. And I think it was George Harrison who said, um, you really think that's a good idea being stuck in a boat with crazy Beatles fans? Because, hey, they had only been off the road for two and a half years. It's still fresh in their memory, the chaos not even two and a half years, by the way. So they considered other things, like maybe a concert at, I think, the Acropolis. And I think Stonehenge. I might be off base on these, but I'm just kind of uh, going by what my fuzzy memory remembers in the past research. And also, they would get a film crew to document the band rehearsing for the show and performing it. And that documentary would be aired on TV. So... The Beatles arranged to be filmed rehearsing for the show at Twickenham Film Studios in London. I think it's in London, at least. If not, it's near London. But there was a problem there. Because they were hiring a film crew, they had to comply with the film crew's standard 9-to-5 work schedule or whatever it was. But the Beatles were night owls. They usually would record and rehearse in the afternoon and go through all hours of the night. But of course, now that they were at the mercy of the film crew, they weren't really acclimated to working a nine to five day <laughs> and th they had a hard time adjusting. The film studio was kind of cold and dank and unexciting and there were high tensions in the air. Uh, some people might want to blame Yoko Ono. Uh, there's actually one of the film reels you can actually, and this is on bootlegs, you can actually hear, I think, Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director talking to Paul McCartney 
and asking how he feels about Yoko being present constantly. And Paul said something along the lines of, well, when she first started hanging around with us, we were kind of annoyed, but I'm okay with it at this point because come on, they're in love. Let them be together. It doesn't bother me. Other problems were, well, the group was already starting to kind of splinter ever since Brian Epstein's death, ever, or is it Epstein, ever since their manager's death, the group started to fall apart. This was late 1967, I'm talking, when it was becoming apparent that the Beatles' days were numbered. There were intra-group tensions, and of course, there's the famous scene in the Let It Be movie of Paul and George kind of clearly being annoyed with each other. It wasn't a screaming fight or anything, but you could clearly tell they were not happy with each other, at least at that moment. And in fact, I think it was January 10th, during the rehearsals, I think it was after lunch, and this is audible on bootlegs, by the way. George announces, I'm leaving the band now, and he ups and leaves. And In fact, there's a diary entry that is pictured in the book that comes with this uh, super deluxe Let It Be, in which George said something like, uh, went to Twickenham, quit the Beatles, had lunch, went home. <laughs> a very amusing read for as short as it is. And one of them, I think it was John Lennon, said, well, what are we going to do now? And then you can hear George off in the distance on his way out of the studio saying, I don't know, put an ad in the New Music Express. Or is it New Musical Express? I'm sorry. <laughs> the rest of the Beatles went on rehearsing, and uh, at some point, uh, after George had quit the band and left and he was gone, at some point during one of the rehearsals, in the middle of a song, John yelled, Take it, George! <laughs> oh, man. But that was pretty chaotic. I think George was gone for maybe two weeks. One of the stipulations of George's return was that Number one, they're not stuck to the stupid nine-to-five schedule they weren't used to. And number two, they weren't going to rehearse in Twickenham Film Studios because they didn't like it. So everybody said, okay, yes, we'll, we'll make the arrangements. So the rehearsals moved over to Apple Studios, which the Beatles owned over on Savile Row, downtown London. And while they were at it, they figured, hey, let's record this stuff and put an album together. The whole point by the way, of the music that the Beatles were recording, rehearsing, and planning to perform live was it would be just the Beatles raw. No overdubs, no fancy studio effects, just them performing live. And that's it. Because Paul thought, guys, we can get a really funky sound together, just like we did in the old days. So just us, nothing fancy. And that's part of the reason the name of the project was originally Get Back. Not just because of the song, but also because the idea was for the Beatles to get back to their roots as just raw rockers. Once they moved over to Apple Studios, George Martin, their producer, he was there, although I don't think he was quite as active as he had been previously. And uh, rather than having formal recording sessions, they were just kind of rehearsing songs at random, sometimes breaking into jam sessions. They'd just jam, or they'd play a lot of oldies that they used to play a lot back in their cavern days, and they'd kind of ramble on for a lot. So the tapes were very unorganized, because it's not like they were saying, okay, we're going to try I've Got a Feeling, and then do several takes of I Got a Feeling until they got a take they labeled best take, this is what we're going to release. 
So the tapes that came about were a mess. They were, they were hard to track. But what they agreed to do for the live performance was to do a concert on the roof of the building where their recording studio was. They set up their instruments on the roof. And in the basement, Alan Parsons, yes, that Alan Parsons, was recording the whole thing. He was their uh, second engineer, I believe, which meant tape operator. On the roof, they performed three or four versions of Get Back, because if they blew a performance, they'd do another take of it. They did, I think, two takes of uh, Don't Let Me Down. They did one or two takes each of I've Got a Feeling, Dig a Pony, and, um, oh, what was the other one? The one after 909. In fact, I think they only did one performance of that. That song dated way back to maybe, I think, 1959, I think. So they did that rooftop performance during lunchtime on January 30th, 1969. And the police came up, literally turned off George Harrison's amp and said, I'm sorry, boys, you have to knock it off. What uh, the Beatles were actually hoping would happen was that they would actually get arrested because they thought this would be a great ending to the documentary. Get a, have us get arrested. But no, they were just told, you got to turn it off. And then the police went away. So that was it. And by the way, I don't know if I ever mentioned this in a previous episode, but the Beatles were not the first to do a rooftop concert in a busy downtown of a major city. I think about eight weeks previously, Jefferson Airplane did a short rooftop concert in New York City, and they performed the house at Puneal Corners. Uh, oh, what's his... Uh, Godard. Godard filmed it, and you can actually see it on YouTube. There are many instances of that on uh, YouTube. Another thing that happened, the Beatles got a call from the folks at United Artists. They had a three-film contract with United Artists. At that point, they had done three films for United Artists, A Hard Day's Night in 1964, Help in 1965, and the animated Yellow Submarine in 1968. And even though it's an animated movie, the actual live, real Beatles, those of you who haven't seen the movie, there's a tag at the end of the movie in which all four Beatles appear for like three minutes. But United Artists called the Beatles and said, yeah, we don't count Yellow Submarine because a cartoon with you guys being in it for only three minutes, we don't think that fulfills your film contract with us. So you got to give us something else. So they decided that instead of the TV documentary, they were going to have the Get Back special turned into a feature length movie that would be shown on screen and United Artists would distribute it, of course. Now, the rooftop concert wasn't the last of it. On the next day, January 31st, the Beatles recorded a few songs inside Apple Studios. They did The Long and Winding Road, Let It Be. Um, I think two of us came from that day, and maybe for you, Blue. I'm not really sure about that one. I might, in fact, I'm pretty sure I'm not right about that. But in the Let It Be movie, when you see the Beatles perform The Long and Winding Road and let it be, that comes from that final day of the sessions. But then after that happened, Ringo went off to do uh, The Magic Christian and other things were happening. I think that's when uh, John and Yoko got married. I think that's when Paul and Linda got married. So they were off doing other things. Get Back and Don't Let Me Down came out as a single, but they didn't really give much thought about that music. And uh, they came back, reconvened, and recorded the Abbey Road album. 
And then they realized, oh, we still have that movie to air, so we need to put out an album to tie in with that movie. There was a producer that the Beatles knew named Glenn Johns. They handed him the tapes from those January sessions and asked him to put together a releasable album. So the Beatles told him exactly what they wanted the album to sound like. Glenn Johns turned around and gave them exactly what they asked for, and the Beatles realized, yeah, we don't really like this. So Glenn Johns tried again to no avail. They still didn't like his second attempt. So they called in Phil Spector. They gave Phil Spector the tapes and said, here, you put together some kind of album, see what you can do. And this was early 1970. By this time, the Beatles actually had already broken up. They broke up probably around September 1969, but the world did not know about it because their manager at the time, Alan Klein, told everybody in the group to keep the breakup quiet for now because he was working on some deals and he wanted to wait for the ink to dry before everybody knew that the Beatles were done. Also in this whole process, the Beatles were told, hey, the movie is going to show you guys rehearsing and performing across the universe, and I, me, mine. We need those songs to go on the album. There's a little problem, though. The Beatles only performed those songs at Twickenham and not at Apple, so ergo, they didn't actually have recordings from January 1969 of Across the Universe or I, me, mine. But the Beatles did record a version of Across the Universe back in 1968. It was a one-off recording meant for a charity album called No One's Gonna Change Our World. It was one of those various artists' things, and it was for the World Wildlife Fund. The Beatles took the tapes from that recording of Across the Universe and shipped them over to Phil Spector for inclusion on Let It Be. And in January of 1970, the Beatles actually had to reunite, except for John Lennon, uh, the common lore is that he and Yoko were on vacation and couldn't make it to the session. Part of me thinks he just didn't want to be there. <laughs> Regardless, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr got together and recorded formally on studio tape, I Me Mine, so that the song could be included on the album because the Beatles were shown performing it in the movie. It's a classic scene in the movie, too. While George and Paul and Ringo are playing I Me Mine, John and Yoko are off to the side waltzing, and it's a, it's a pretty uh, memorable scene. So now Phil Spector had the tapes from the January 1969 sessions, the tapes from across the universe, and now this new recording of I Me Mine so he could put together a new album which would now be called Let It Be. And in the meantime, by the way, some of the recordings from the Get Back sessions actually leaked out and found their way to some radio DJs. And what do you do if you're a radio DJ in late 1969 and you're given new Beatles recordings? You are going to put those suckers on the air as soon as possible, which of course happened in several markets. I think uh, the most famous one is WBCN in Boston because the air check from that actually circulates. What happened? They played those songs. The folks at Apple got wind of it and they told everybody, you better not play that stuff again if you want to get the new Beatles music when it comes out. So they're like, okay, sorry. <laughs> but what happens? The Let It Be movie comes out in 1970. The Let It Be album comes out 
By the way, the movie Apollo 13, wonderful movie. There's one part of it that really makes me cringe, though. There's a scene in which Jim Lovell's daughter is all pissed off about the Beatles breaking up because Paul McCartney had made that announcement that the Beatles were breaking up, and she had in her hands a copy of the Let It Be album. Problem. Um, Apollo 13 takes place in the middle of April. The Let It Be album didn't come out until May 8th. So, yeah, there's that uh, little uh, anachronism. And don't try to tell me, well, Jim Lovell was an astronaut. Astronauts had special privileges. Maybe one of the... No, shut up. Shut up. Just stop. Just stop. Okay? Thank you. What I do appreciate, though, I think it was was either 2002 or 2003. My wife and I went to Washington, D.C. for an extended weekend for her birthday. And while we were there... Apollo 13 was being shown at the Air and Space Museum on their IMAX screen, and Apollo 13 is one of my wife's favorite movies. In fact, it might be Lisa's very favorite movie ever. So, of course, we went over and watched it. The version of Apollo 13 they showed on the IMAX screen, they cut out the scene with the misplaced Let It Be cover, so I applaud them for that. I think there are other... Uh, versions of the movie that don't have that in there. But if you go get the DVD or Blu-ray or watch it streaming, it's going to have the misplaced Let It Be cover. (laughs) And of course, the most famous thing perhaps about the Let It Be album is the way Phil Spector is. Phil Spector is not going to just make a raw production out of something. He's got that famous wall of sound technique, which is exactly what he did to several of the recordings on the Let It Be album. He overdubbed orchestras and choirs and brass, and Paul McCartney was really pissed off about that, especially with the song The Long and Winding Road. He wanted that to be just the Beatles and Billy Preston, whom they brought in to play keyboard during the Apple Records recording sessions in January. But here you have this orchestra, this choir, and Paul was so furious, he wrote a very scathing letter to Phil Spector requesting that they be removed, and he said, do not ever do that to my music again. Well, unfortunately for Paul, it didn't get removed. The song Let It Be had a similar treatment, but not quite as obnoxious. I Me Mine had extra horns and strings. Uh, Across the Universe had choirs and strings, and for whatever reason, Phil Spector slowed the recording down, so John Lennon's voice just sounds really weird on that. And he also took out the existing background vocals. So what the Beatles actually gave Phil Spector and what they got back from Phil Spector, completely different things for all practical purposes. I think Paul was really the only one bothered by it, given how both John Lennon and George Harrison worked with Spector several times after that. John even defended Phil Spector and said, given the stuff that we gave him, given what a mess the recording sessions were, It's pretty impressive that he was able to put together any kind of album at all, so I give him props for that. (laughs) He's something along those lines. I don't think John would have said, I give him props for that. I don't know if that was in the vernacular of a uh, 1970 Liverpudlian. And while I'm at it also, I should also talk about the movie. A lot of Beatles fans do not like Let It Be. They consider it to be a very depressing movie. And personally, I don't really see why. It's not depressing. The only really bad thing about that movie in terms of the content is that little argument that Paul and George were having. And even then it wasn't really all that bad. 
You don't see George getting up and quitting the Beatles. In fact, there are a lot of happy moments in that movie. Early on in the movie, you see Paul and Ringo sitting together at a piano and banging out a Jerry Lee Lewis tune together, and they're having a blast. You see John and Paul sharing a microphone, singing Two of Us together. You have the rooftop concert, which pretty much everybody agrees was a great scene in that movie. There's a part where they're kind of just off the cuff performing Besame Mucho, and the way that Paul sang it, everybody was cracking up. So there were some good times in that movie. I think the only reason some people find the Let It Be movie to be depressing is that they know that it was when the Beatles were on the verge of breaking up. If you didn't know that, you'd never think, oh, this is a depressing movie. You might think it's a boring movie, to be quite honest, and I can totally see why, because the cameras are rolling and just watching these four guys just kind of noodling around and rehearsing, especially during the part of the film that's at the Twickenham sessions, because you can see how dank it was. And also, the movie Let It Be looks bad. It looks bad. It really does. It looks all washed out. The colors are terrible. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, Remember I said that the Let It Be movie started out as a TV documentary called Get Back? Well, in 1970, movie screens had a different aspect ratio from a TV screen. So to get that documentary formatted for the big screen, they had to do some cropping. So we're losing some quality. You had to make an almost square picture fit on a non-square screen. The movie was available for a very brief time in the early 80s on home video, on VHS, Laserdisc, and those CED things, basically vinyl equivalent to a, uh, to a video disc. Remember those things? I, f- I think RCA made them. And those things looked bad too, because think about this. Home TV screens were still a 4x3 ratio, almost a square. So what did they do? They took the cinematic film print and cropped that down to a TV size. So basically, you're watching a crop of a crop, and the quality is terrible. The sound is bad, the video quality is bad, even on the Laserdisc. There are pirated copies of the uncropped Let It Be going around, and they are so much better, but still not great. Somewhere in the Apple archives is a remastered Let It Be that looks fantastic. You can see parts of it in the anthology documentary. But it's sitting there collecting dust because, well, particularly George Harrison didn't like that the movie was available. So he was pretty instrumental in making sure that Let It Be was out of print and would not go back into consumers' hands because, like many fans, he thought that Let It Be was a depressing movie and he didn't want his fans seeing what was going on. And unfortunately, after he died, his next of kin have pretty much been following suit, thinking, well, George didn't want it out, so out of respect for him, we're going to keep it out of print. And having said that, though, coming up on Disney Plus, Thanksgiving weekend is a six-hour documentary in three parts, two hours each, directed by Peter Jackson. It's basically kind of a re-editing of the Let It Be story. Uh, Some people are afraid it might be whitewashed to make it look like it was all happy times from start to finish. From what I've read, it's not necessarily going to be the case. It's going to be a little bit on the balance side, which is good. But the thing is, those who are worried about this thing being whitewashed, I think are the same people who don't like Let It Be because it's depressing. So make up your minds, people. 
The trailer is out there on YouTube. I'll link it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. And if you watch it, it looks absolutely stunning. It is so, the colors are nice and bright. The sound is really good. Uh, unfortunately, that is also cropped, obviously, to get to fit on uh, 16 by 9 ratio screens, but it still looks amazing. And I, I can't wait to see the thing. Now, having said all that, let's get back to the purpose of this episode, my review, my thoughts on the Let It Be Super Deluxe Edition. It's, again, five CDs, and I wasn't really all that jazzed about getting it, but the reason I got it is because I'm a Beatles fan, I'm obsessive, I gotta have anything I can get my hands on. Plus, I had a lot of Beatles bootlegs that had the stuff on it, and one of the gentlemen's agreements that we bootleg collectors had back in the 90s was that if this music was ever released officially, we'd do the right thing and, and buy it. So I feel at least obligated to do that. Now, the reason that I was a little bit put off by it was that it's five CDs, but all the material could actually fit probably on only three CDs. One CD is a remixed version of the Let It Be album, just those songs and nothing else. So you have all kinds of dead plastic on that CD that could have been taken up by some music. Another CD is an EP that was put together just for this set, four songs of standard length. That's another waste of disc. Two of those songs were Glenn John's mixes of uh, I Mean Mine and I Think Across the Universe, and two of the other songs were brand new mixes. There was one CD that had rehearsals from, I think, Twickenham, and another that had rehearsals from Apple. Now, here's the thing. Those of us who collected the Beatles bootlegs back then, bootlegs coming from the Get Back era were almost entirely taken from the film reels from the movie. The cool thing is every second of the Beatles rehearsing and recording in January 1969 was captured on film, and every second of the audio made its way into collector's hands. So, if you have that kind of stamina, you can listen to the Beatles' entire month of January. If you know how to properly use search terms on the internet, or if you have a friend who has this stuff on bootleg CDs or whatever else have you. The problem with the audio being taken from the film reels is that you very frequently, in the middle of a performance, you will hear an annoying beep. Or sometimes you'll hear a technical director break in, sync to second camera or something to that effect. You'll hear like voices out of nowhere and it's kind of annoying. <laughs> And the beeps, by the way, are basically synchronization markers for the film reels and for the tapes and everything. So that's a very small, possibly inaccurate explanation, but at least it gives you an idea why there are beeps in there. What I love about this particular set, especially with the Twickenham audio that's included on it, there are no beeps. There's no uh, director voices interrupting the music. So that was really cool. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if it was editing or if they used certain technology to cancel it out or filter it out or what, but that was really cool. The Let It Be remix, the original album, but with a new mix, sounds really, really nice. It's much more listenable than the 1970 release. I think what might have happened was uh, back during the Beatles time, when they would record on four-track and eight-track tape, 
If they ran out of tracks, then, well, they would have to reduce those tracks onto another tape to do any overdubs. And yeah, I know with Let It Be, they didn't want to do overdubs. Uh, The truth is they did. Uh, The single version of Let It Be, for example, has some overdubs on it. And of course, the album version, the album is loaded with overdubs, thanks to Phil Spector. (laughs) So I'm thinking one thing they might have done was taken the original unreduced tracks and synced them up with Phil Spector's overdubs for a little bit better sound. And also, Phil Spector's wall of sound stuff, for lack of a better term, was mixed down a little bit, so it's not quite as obnoxious. It's still there, it's still loud and clear, but it's not in your face. The only problem I have is that the album version of Let It Be, there was always a problem during the end, when Paul McCartney's voice is basically at war with the lead guitar, I thought maybe this mix would fix that, but unfortunately it does not. But overall, it sounds really good. Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, did a really nice job of remixing the original album as it is. And one thing that I cannot overemphasize is the sound quality. The sound on this set is phenomenal, with one exception. That exception, I think, is the remix of I Me Mine that's on that four-song EP. There's a lot of digital distortion in it, especially when somebody harmonizes with George on that. You can hear digital noise in there. Somebody overlooked that in quality control. The outtakes sound phenomenal. Oh, one thing that I have to talk about is, uh, well, the most famous story is how Paul McCartney was really unhappy with Phil Spector and what he did with the Let It Be album. And in 2003, he kind of spearheaded an album called Let It Be Naked. He, I don't think he actually worked on it per se, but he kind of got the ball rolling on it. And Let It Be Naked, for those of you who haven't heard it or seen it, it's basically the songs the Beatles recorded during the Let It Be sessions But just them, no overdubs, no nothing. So you have the long and winding road without uh, the orchestra. In fact, there's a nice organ solo from Billy Preston on that. It's in the movie, but uh, it was never released on a recording. To me, it's the way to listen to the Let It Be album. It's, It's a different track listing a little bit, but it still works. It's really, really cool. Check it out. There was one complaint that I had in particular with it. In the movie Let It Be... When they're performing the song, Let It Be, on January 31st, 1969, that particular take of the song, Paul throws in the line, there will be no sorrow, which to me works great because it rhymes with the line, shine until tomorrow. But every released version of that song did not have that line in it. I think it was, there will be an answer. When Anthology 3 came out, nope, they didn't use a version of Let It Be with there will be no sorrow. When Let It Be Naked came out, There will be no sorrow? Nope, there will be an answer. And it was just driving me crazy. Why can we not get a performance with that line on it? Did Paul not want that line out? In fact, the version of Let It Be Naked, for the most part, uses the take that has the line, There will be no sorrow, but they edited the line in from another take so that he would sing There will be an answer. So I was just tearing my hair out. But I noticed on the Super Deluxe Edition... Let it be take off oh, the top of my head. It's either 26 or 28, which is a weird thing in and of itself. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. I wondered, hmm. So I went straight to that track and what's in it. There will be no sorrow. My wife was out when I was listening to this, but when she got home, I said, come here, come listen to that. She heard there will be no sorrow. And she said, oh my God, finally. <laughs> 
Another cool thing that I like about the outtakes they used uh, in the movie, let it be when they're performing, don't let me down on the roof. John Lennon completely blows the first line of either the second or third verse. And he laughs it off. That version is on the super deluxe edition. It was also on anthology three too, but I'm glad they included it in this, uh, in this box. There is something that was included in the set that I think was a really, really cool inclusion. And that's, uh, a little jam session in which the Beatles, with Billy Preston singing lead, did a song called Without a Song. Actually, I think it was only John and Ringo. I don't think Paul and George were on that, but Billy sang the hell out of it. He sounded fantastic. Definitely worth checking out. Now, interestingly, remember how I said that the Beatles during these sessions would break into jams and do a bunch of oldies that they knew back in the day? Uh, none of those oldies are on this set. It's pretty much just different takes of the songs that were on the Let It Be album. I'm guessing that the powers that be thought, yeah, it'd be nice if we put some of those oldies in here, but we'd have to obtain the rights and you know, let's not deal with that. So whatever, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Now that I think of it, though, I don't know if getting rights to songs was a really huge issue because I just now pulled open the track list from the Super Deluxe Edition. And what do I see? I see Wake Up Little Susie, which, of course, is a Everly Brothers song written by Felice and Boudelot Bryant. Obviously, there would have had to have been some licensing with that. Uh, the Walk, I think, was a cover. It's listed as a jam. I think I think it's a cover of somebody's song. Well, yeah, the uh, writing credits are Jimmy McCracklin and Bob Garlick, uh, without a song, as I just mentioned. Oh, and uh, the Glenn Johns version of the album, the two attempts that he did, he had a track on that called Rocker. Well, Rocker was actually I'm Ready by Fats Domino, and it also included Save the Last Dance for Me. So those are two other covers that were included on the set. So yeah, maybe they could have dug out a few more oldies, but eh, it doesn't matter. They're on anthology if you want to hear them. Speaking of if you want to hear them, Giles Martin said, I think it was uh, on Fab Four Free For All when they interviewed him. He said, to people complaining, I think he specifically singled out Angry Doug in New Jersey. <laughs> um, he said, the people complaining about what is going to be included, what's not going to be included on this set. Everything's been bootlegged. You can go to the bootlegs and listen to it. So you got to love it when someone on the inside is guiding you to black market material. Isn't that great? Now, remember how I said the Beatles brought in Glenn Johns to try to put together a releasable album and they weren't satisfied with what they heard? Well, one of the CDs in the Super Deluxe Edition is Glenn Johns' first attempt. Now, that first attempt had been bootlegged many times, so it wasn't really new material, but oh my goodness, the sound on it is amazing. They did a really nice job of mastering it, brightening it. Sounds so much better than the best bootleg version I ever heard. So it's really nice to have that. And what else can I say? I do have a couple of problems with the set. I talked about one of them already, about how there's that uh, digital noise in I Me Mine, that one version of it. And uh, the other problem, of course, is that it took five CDs, what could have been put out on three CDs, and of course, with a price reduction, perhaps. My theory is that this was basically arranged as if they were vinyl. And there is a vinyl version of the set, too, by the way. I don't have it yet. <laughs> 
And the thing is, if you think about it, the way that the discs are organized would make perfect sense for vinyl. It would, it would be perfect because you have the Let It Be album remastered. There's one vinyl disc. You have the Glenn Johns Get Back mix. That's another disc. That EP, you can make a seven-inch record out of that. The other two discs, there's one record each right there. So maybe what they were doing was basically taking records and turning them into CDs. This is not a first for the Beatles. Let It Be Naked had the same problem. That was a two-CD set, but it could have easily fit on one CD. You had the reimagined Let It Be album, and then the other CD was about 20 minutes of jams and outtakes from, I think, mainly the Twickenham rehearsals. That CD easily could have fit on the other CD as well. Now, on the vinyl version of Let It Be Naked, the reimagined Let It Be was its own record, a 12-inch long player, and the second disc, the so-called Fly on the Wall disc, was on a 7-inch 33 and a third RPM vinyl. So that made sense right there. Also, in 1993, when the famous Red album, also known as 1962 through 1966, double album came out on CD... It was another thing that could have easily fit on one CD, but they made it a two CD set with a list price of $32. That was list price. Retail price might have been a lot less, but still a lot of fans were kind of scratching their heads over that. Why is this a two CD set? It should be a one CD set. But yeah, I did not like that it's a five CD set, mainly for pricing reasons. For logistics, I really don't care because usually what I do with CDs is I rip them on my computer and I listen on a computer or an iPod or my phone. And if I want to amplify it, I'll connect it to my my receiver, of course. I don't really listen to the actual physical CDs that much. And the reason that I'm making a big deal about that is because another five CD set that I recently got Feel Flows, the Sunflower and Surf's Up Sessions 1969 to 1971 by the Beach Boys. That was a five CD set. Same price as the Let It Be Super Deluxe Edition, but practically every usable second on all five of those CDs was used. So five CDs jam-packed with material, as opposed to, say, the Let It Be Super Deluxe Edition, which they weren't jam-packed at all. It was basically just your standard album length material on a single CD, sometimes not even an album's length. So that I think they could have done better with. I did hear from at least one person that the outer box, the dye rubbed off on fingers, but I have not had that problem. So I don't know. Uh, The box comes with a really nice looking book. It's not the official get back book that's sold separately, but it's still a really cool book to look through some amazing pictures. I haven't really read much of it yet, but it has uh, an intro from Paul McCartney. It has uh, an essay from Glenn Johns and um, I don't know what else have you. Uh, Hi there. Future Sean again. Um, I have one more uh, ding to give the let it be super deluxe edition. It was just found out that Everywhere in the world, except for Japan, despite the disc being labeled the 1969 Glenn Johns mix, it actually isn't. Here's the deal. As I mentioned before, Glenn Johns put together his version of the Get Back album in 1969, and the Beatles didn't like the result. I mentioned that he did a second one. That was in 1970, after the Beatles recorded I, Me, Mine and we're told that they also have to include Across the Universe. So Glenn Johns did another one in 1970. 
Very similar to what he did the year before, except of course it now had I Me Mine and Across the Universe. There were a couple of different takes, but it was overall the same vibe. While it was found out that the disc claiming to have the 1969 Glenn Johns album actually is a hodgepodge of the 1969 and 1970 album. So there are some mixes done in 1970 from different takes from what was used in 1969. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. On the one hand, it's not a huge deal, but on the other hand, we're being told it's the original 1969 lineup, which it's not. I think if it would have said that it was, say, the Glenn Johns mixes and didn't specifically say it was the 1969 one, that would have been a little bit better. Now, the strange thing is on the Japanese release of this box set, it actually does contain the original 1969 Glenn Johns mix. So go figure. But that does leave a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth telling us one thing, but giving us another. So I don't know. Anybody listening to this who makes any kind of artistic decisions like that, do not do that. Either tell people what you're giving them or give people what you claim they're giving them. Don't artificially improve anything. Anyway, back to present slash past slash whatever, Sean. And what I found interesting, though, is I think it was an interview that I read with uh, Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, who says that he actually likes the Let It Be album. Uh, His father, George, did not like it. He was really upset by it because, well... The Beatles wanted to put this album together, and instead of giving the tapes to him, their producer for the past six and a half years, he's like, hey, what about me, guys? They handed off to Glenn Johns and Phil Spector, and George Martin didn't like the result. On the back of the Let It Be album, I think the credit is something like original recordings produced by George Martin, reproduced for record by Phil Spector, or something like that. And George Martin said that it should have said overproduced by Phil Spector. And I kind of agree with him. (laughs) I admit there are a few things that I feel were left off the set that should have been included. For example, among diehard Beatles fans and bootleg collectors, there's a well-known outtake of Get Back recorded during the Apple sessions. So we know it exists on tape in which Paul McCartney is singing it. Well, first he sings a verse in faux German. And then he sings another verse in full French. It would have been nice to have that. It it would have been. Also, during the Twickenham portion, and this is in the movie, this is in the original Let It Be movie, the Beatles are kind of just jamming on this 12-bar blues, kind of up-tempo number. It was an improvisation called either Susie's Parlor or Susie Parker. That really, really would have been a great addition to the set. I do think that there might have been a couple of issues. First of all, they might not have been able to uh, release a version without beeps in it. And second of all, it might be that the lyrics were a tiny bit risque, just enough to warrant not putting it on the set. Some fans were complaining that there was nothing related to the song You Know My Name, Look Up the Number on the set. Personally, I really couldn't give a crap about that appearing on the Let It Be set because, well, it wasn't recorded during the Get Back sessions. It was recorded sporadically between 1967 and 1969. The only reason people associate it with uh, Let It Be or Get Back is that the song was the B-side of Let It Be. 
So I really don't see a necessity to include that. And also a lot of folks were complaining that the entire rooftop concert was not on the box. Personally, I don't think it needed to be. It's just the same five songs recorded multiple times just to get a good performance, just to get a good take. I agree with people who say that that's really more of a visual thing, and it's probably better off being seen than just heard, which is why allegedly it's in the Peter Jackson documentary in its entirety. But really, there's no real reason that you would absolutely need that entire rooftop concert. No. Personally, there's one other thing that I would have liked to have seen on this set, but I can understand why it wasn't released. Just yet another outtake. There's a version of I've Got a Feeling in which when John Lennon starts his part, everybody had a hard year. He sounds almost like Bruce Springsteen. His voice is so raspy. He's everybody had a hard year. I would have loved to have seen that on this set. It's only for his first verse. When he does his second verse, his voice is back to normal. Now, on the Yellow Dog bootleg label, I don't remember which bootleg CD it was on, but that take was on there under the title, I've Got Another Feeling. Probably because when Paul started the song, he actually sang the line as, I've got another feeling, instead of I've got a feeling. So, oh well. No big deal to not have that. As Giles Martin said, I can go to the bootlegs if I really want to hear that. So there you go. What I found interesting was that the jam Dig It, which on the original Let It Be album is only about a minute long, roughly, actually probably even less. The Glenn Johns version of the album has a little over four minutes of it. The original version, the unedited version, lasts over eight minutes. I was, well, I was both surprised and not surprised not to see the full length version on the set because historically Beatles archival releases don't tend to like to put out the whole versions of longer songs. Case in point, Christmas time is here again from the, uh, I think it was the 1967 Christmas fan club record. I talked about that in a previous episode a few years ago, but that's basically one verse repeated many, many times over six minutes. The whole point of that was basically for them to have something they can chop up into pieces and drop it in here and there. But I do not believe the folks at Apple ever released that. You got to go to the bootlegs if you want it. It's all too much from the movie Yellow Submarine goes on for seven or eight minutes. That version is not out yet. And of course, there is a version of Helter Skelter sitting in the vaults that is 27 minutes long. That version has never been heard outside of the studio. And personally, I think there's a really good reason for it. It was an early version of Helter Skelter that was a little slower, a lot less involved than what was on the White Album, and frankly, kind of boring. Chances are, the 27-minute version of Helter Skelter was like that. Very boring. So you'd be sitting there boring your your fans for 27 minutes. So historically, it makes sense that Diggit is not included in its entirety. So I'm not going to rag them about that. It's an interesting listen, but it's the same four chords over and over for eight and a half minutes. And you hear this little wailing noise in the background that people might think is Yoko Ono. No, it's five-year-old Heather Eastman, Paul McCartney's soon-to-be stepdaughter. 
But overall, really, though, I think it's the sound quality that really makes me extremely happy that I have this set. I think of the uh, 50th anniversary sets the Beatles put out so far, the Sgt. Pepper set, the Abbey Road set, the White Album, and uh, Let It Be. In terms of sound quality, I think Let It Be is the best one. It sounds so cool, sounds so great. Content-wise, for me, it's the White Album, even though it's not my favorite Beatles album. I have heard, I have read in an interview with Giles Martin that he is planning to do something similar with Rubber Soul and Revolver. Even though they're long past their 50th anniversaries, I so can't wait to hear those things. But really, this uh, Let It Be set, I'm really happy with it. So there you have it. Um, If you have any comments, questions, or anything else you want to reach out to me with, email is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. My Instagram and Twitter handle is schnookpodcast. I'm on Facebook. But anyway, um, all the best, my friends. And the good goes around, especially with this Let It Be set. Bye-bye. Where do I go? Follow the river. Where do I go? Follow the gulls. Where is the something? Where is the someone that tells me why I live and die? Where do I go? Follow the children, where do I go? Follow their smiles. Is there an answer in their sweet faces that tells me why I live and die? Follow the wind song, follow the thunder, follow the neon and yellow. Into the city where the truth lies Where do I go? Follow the children Where do I go? Follow their smiles Is there an answer in their sweet faces That tells me why I live and die? Discover why I live and die